Good morning and welcome to Sunday Forum at St. Luke's Episcopal Church. I am uh, introducing a forum in which I will introduce the speaker. But I'm doing this unusual introduction because the interview and the conversation needed to turn into a two-part forum with our speaker, Robert P. Jones. So this is to introduce the first one and to say that there is also going to be a second one next Sunday. And I will come back at the end of the interview with Robert P. Jones and just do a really quick summary and uh, kind of do a teaser for the next Sunday. So um, we are in a time of crisis. And there are at least three crises going on. We have a pandemic, which is a health crisis. We have a, an attendant economic crisis. And we also have an issue and a crisis about racial reckoning in our country. And we, as responsible people, are taking a look at the phenomenon of systemic racism, not pointing our finger and calling people racists and not thinking about racism as being a moment in one event, but rather an environment in which we all live. And the pandemic has kind of taken the cover away and seen that, not in, that in the pandemic, we have a situation where different people are having different experiences and impacts and there's a correlation between the impacts, their race. And as responsible people, as followers of Jesus, we have to look at that. So this interview is part one of a conversation with Robert P. Jones, who has been looking at how white Christianity, a certain version of white Christianity, has been a delivery system for systemic racism and white supremacy. Now, um, I invite you to please open your hearts and minds to hear some things that could be possibly challenging and to try it on, kind of sit with it. So let me stop now and we'll go to our forum with Robert P. Jones, and then stay with me. I want to come back and conclude it afterwards. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. We're so thrilled that you are with us at uh, St. Luke's Sunday Forum. I have someone I admire as our guest today to unpack a very, very important issue for. Christianity for the world, for America. His name is Robert P. Jones. He'll introduce himself to you in just a few minutes. And then after that, I will tell you about my enthusiasm for one of his books, which for me was and still is a breakthrough book. And now he has a second, and we're going to unpack uh, both of them to the degree that we can in our limited time. But for right now, let me welcome you, Robert P. Jones. So glad you're here with us. Oh, thanks so much. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Very, very good. So um, let me say one thing that kind of introduces uh, Robbie. Um, so when I retired before I flunked retirement, after uh, being in Pasadena for 21 years, um, about that time, this was um, 2018, 20, yeah, 2016, I'm sorry, um, I, uh, 2016, uh, his book, uh, The End of White Christian America, came out. It just appealed to me, everything I read about it. I got it, digested it, and started teaching it in almost every venue I was invited to preach or teach. Uh, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Nevertheless, he is the author of a very important book in my thinking. 
and we'll talk about why that is also important about my own personal journey of re-narrating Christianity and re-narrating American history. We'll get there. But right now, I would love for Robert P. Jones to introduce himself to us, tell us a little bit about what he does in Washington, D.C., and what has uh, his journey that has brought him both to that work and to these books. So, Robbie, tell us a little bit about your own spiritual or personal autobiography. Uh, well, thanks. Thanks, Ed. I'm really happy to be here. Happy to be talking to your virtual audience here. I, I love your pillow in the background, by the way. I'm not retired. I'm rewired, <laughs> which I think goes uh, to your to your point here. Um, so I uh, I am the CEO and founder of the Public Religion Research Institute. Um, uh, may see us shortened because uh, that's a big mouthful as PRRI. Um, often um, we uh, do research. We're an independent, nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that does research at the intersection of religion, culture, and politics. Uh, most of our work is through public opinion surveys and demographic um, analysis about the changing religious and racial demographics in the country, in addition to kind of keeping our finger on the pulse of what Americans and particularly religious Americans think um, about the big fault lines in our culture, the big issues uh, there. So just a couple of examples, we do a lot of uh, uh, research on uh, racial justice, which we'll talk about a lot today, uh, but also on issues like immigration, on abortion and contraception, uh, on LGBTQ rights, um, basically a lot of the things that you're not supposed to talk about at dinner um, and in polite company are things that we try to provide uh, research about so that when we have these conversations, uh, they can be based not just on anecdote or assertion, but they can actually have some real data uh, behind them. So we interview about 100,000 um, people a year uh, at PRI, and our, our mission really is to help journalists uh, and uh, clergy and the general public really have a better fact-based understanding of where uh, American public opinion is at this intersection of religion and politics. In other words, at, you are the person that I wish I had in my earbud at a Thanksgiving <laughs> lunch with my Uncle Earl. Um, and right. here comes all sorts of data that I don't trust and believe. And I say, let me call Robbie and... Um, you know, that's, that's and I'd much rather be in your earbud than at the table with your uncle bud. But uh, yes, <laughs> I always want to yeah. extend you as much compassion as possible. Main <laughs> friends, yeah, yeah. So let's let's get into the end of, of white Christian America. Let me uh, really quickly, unless there's something else you need to. Well, I hope that you'll talk a little bit about Macon and Jackson uh, during yeah. the conversation. You don't. We don't have to get into that right now. Um. I, I do want to tease everybody. Um, Robbie and I have an overlapping life. Uh, we've never met one another and been in the same physical space, but have the same cities, uh, Macon, Georgia, Jackson, Mississippi, and Washington, D.C., that have really made a difference in who he is and who I am. And he, he'll unpack some of that today in these brief moments that we have. But uh, let me just give a testimony. Um, it'll be an, a rather emotional testimony about the power of your book. Now, this is, you're the author, I think, of four or five books. Um, but I'm going to tap into your, uh, the one just before the one we're talking about today. The End of White Christian America, even in the title, signaled to me a truth and a reality that I had experienced after more than 40 years of professional ordained ministry, first as a Southern Baptist in Georgia, and then as an Episcopal priest in Georgia, Mississippi, and Los Angeles County, now in Atlanta. And uh, I knew that the religion I inherited, I oftentimes talk about it as having been assigned to me. Like, you know, our transgender siblings tell us about being assigned a certain gender, and it turns out that they are not that gender. 
I was assigned a toxic um, narrative that was not the one that I discovered in my heart. And all of my life, uh, I'm 72, almost 65 years of my life have been struggling with receiving that narrative and waking up to the fact that I live in that narrative, I swim in it, and yet I learned in a mystical experience in South Georgia in a pine grove that that's not God. And so that's the, been the struggle. So when I saw your book, I said, Jesus, that thing is on target. That stuff that I was given is no, it, it never has really worked for everybody. It's never been the truth about Jesus or the religion of Jesus or of God. And it's dying. And churches are dying left and right because of their attachment to that theology. So having kind of given that framework about why I got so excited and why I kept teaching your book everywhere I would go and tell people, you've got to read this book. Now, I know we're going to get into your current book, but please let's go back to the end of White Christian America. I, what I do is I tell everybody that the heart of it is sandwiched between a eulogy at the funeral of white Christian America and the obituary of white, of white Christian America. Brilliantly executed, by the way, my friend. Now, Thank you. Talk, talk about the, the heart of it, because the real problems that white Christian America made or mistakes they made have to do with race, family, as you call it, um, and then powers, I've been telling people. But just unpack that for about five minutes, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, no, thanks. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, so the book is The End of White Christian America, um, which is a little bit of a provocative uh, title. Um, but, you know, what I meant by, the, by white Christian America is, is really a metaphor for this kind of cultural and religious edifice that I think many took literally to be America, right? That America was this white Anglo-Saxon Protestant country, yes. um, and, and, and that marriage, I think, of white Protestantism to American identity um, is really what I was talking about um, ending. Um, and, you know, it ended in, in uh, there's a couple of different ways you can talk about it ending. I mean, you know, one, one thing, I, one touch point I often go back to, to how um, uh, this was, it, it, how deep this was in our psyche, is that even, you know, a, a fairly progressive president like FDR um, you know, infamously said, look, this is a Protestant country. Everyone else is here by sufferance, right? I mean, it was just so deeply ingrained that you could just say things like that. It was a non-controversial uh, statement. Even the more liberal end of the white Protestant world, um, for example, the Christian Century magazine, right, which is, uh, you know, uh, kind of anchoring, you know, a piece of a magazine for the mainline Protestant world, uh, spent a lot of time in the mid-1940s. Um, in fact, uh, more than a dozen issues of the magazine were focused on the Catholic threat uh, to America, that, that wow. you know, even Catholics were suspect, um, were um, literally a threat to democracy. Um, and so, you know, but so it really was this kind of white Protestant world. And, and I realized that, um, you know, my day job, I spent a lot of time looking at the numbers and patterns and demographic shifts. And one of the things I realized that not, had not been talked about very much is that really in the last, um, so the book came out in, in 2016, and at that time, if I just look back a decade before and realized that we had crossed this threshold in the country that no one was really talking about that much, and that was that we had, demographically speaking, moved from being a country that was majority white and Christian to one that was no longer majority white and Christian. So at the beginning, when Barack Obama was running for president in 2008, for example, uh, the country was comfortably 54% uh, majority white and Christian. Um, by the time he leads office and we have um, the, uh, the campaign with um, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, that number had slipped down to 47%, right? So just during Obama's presidency, we had dropped from 54% down to 47%. That's the number I have actually in the book, because when the book went to press, that's where the numbers were. Uh, since that time, it's dropped another five percentage points. So the, the current number is now 42% white and Christian. Um, so you combine that with our first African-American president, right, that, that this uh, identity shift happens when we have symbolically 
a first African-American in the White House. Um, I think it, those two things explain a lot about, um, I think, the, the backlash of the Tea Party, the challenge to President Obama's uh, religious identity, the challenge to his uh, uh, standing as a citizen. Um, you know, these were all, I think, about, um, I think we kind of had, you know, literally a freak out moment uh, among many white Christians that were realizing that at least the America as they understood it, that is the America owned by white Protestantism was literally disappearing. The sun was setting um, on that idea um, and even the idea, that ideal for many um, of America. Uh, and so the demographics told that story, the, our first African-American in the White House, uh, African-American president in the White House told that story. And, and then things like, um, you know, the um, uh, 2015 Obergefell decision legalizing same-sex marriage across the state, uh, across the country, all of these things told of a kind of breakdown and a setting of the sun on this world that I think the Christian right had built uh, with real claims to ownership of the country. Um, and, and I think that that's the world, that's the stage that Donald Trump uh, stepped onto in 2016. And so uh, just one thing to tie this to our current politics is, you know, his slogan, make America great again, right? It's that last word actually that I think has all the power um, and that it's off that word often you know kind of slips by, but it is it is this um, appeal I think to a you know supposedly former golden age when white Christians owned the country, uh, held all the cultural power, held all the political power, um, and uh, that is uh, just really stark. And one one thing that you know since we do data, I'll give you one data point um, that I think was one of the most telling to me in the 2016 election, and that was we asked this question about whether. Um, uh, American, the, the American, wife has, American way of life has changed for the better or changed for the worse since the 1950s. Uh, it turns out that the country um, in 2016 was evenly divided on that question. Uh, the two political parties were mirror opposites of each other. Two-thirds of Democrats said things have changed for the better since the 1950s. Two-thirds of Republicans say things have changed for the worse. But what was really notable to me is that all white Christian groups white mainland Protestants, white Catholics, and especially white evangelicals uh, were all aligned on the side saying things have changed for the worse since the 1950s. And there was no group more than white evangelicals, 75% of whom said things have changed for the worse since the 1950s. And that's the group that gave, of course, Donald Trump 81% of their vote. And I, so I think the thing driving you know, the 2016 election, it was very much about who we are as a country, who we're going to be as a country, uh, that was all wrapped up with a racial and religious identity. Um, and that slogan, Make America Great Again, had the effect, I think, of um, one way I've, I've talked about this is converting uh, so-called values voters, uh, which is what many conservative white Christians called themselves uh, in previous elections, to, to being really nostalgia voters. That is kind of motivated, you know, less by things like uh, a candidate's character, for example, and more about how a candidate says, said that they would be the one to essentially turn back the clock or literally turn back the clock uh, to a previous vision of America, you know, where white Christians uh, held more sway. Absolutely. So one of the things I appreciated in your, in that book is you said that this demographic shift was going to alter and actually prove the story that we told ourselves about ourselves to be untrue, mm -hmm. uh, simply because it couldn't demographically hold up because of the rapid change. And you said, even if we didn't have this demographic change, the three, uh, I think it's three problems, or maybe it's four, that where we got it wrong as white Protestants, but you wonderfully put in the Catholicism and all of the stuff that's going on there. We got it wrong on those things and that would have done us in anyway, because we could not, the story we were telling ourselves about race, gender, sexuality, and power, and you're gonna have to correct me here, is just not sustainable. So could you just spend a few minutes unpacking that and then also clarifying what the third or the fourth issue were. I, I must say I focused on race and uh, sexual orientation. Yeah, 
Um, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to pull up uh, all four of those things right now uh, myself, but you know, I, I think that's right. I, and I think that's why this is so challenging though, is that what, what we really are talking about is a retelling, a re-narrating, you know, of our identity and our, and our Genesis story, right? Yes. Um, from who we are as a country to who we are as Christians uh, and, and things like who Jesus is, what salvation means. I mean, these are very, very deep and um, dis and disturbing things to rattle, right? Uh, th these are things that I think people tend to think is fixed objects in the universe. Um, and instead, I think, you know, where we are is it, it is kind of holding up a mirror and saying, okay, um, where, where, why, why were we where we were um, on these issues? Um, and is, is that, was that the right path? Yeah. Um, do we take the right path? Um, and, and if we find ourselves over here on a branch uh, that we think is an error um, and we, you know, can we backtrack? What does that look like? And what implications does that have for these other three or four, uh, you know, things here? So I, I, I think I, I wrote um, a thing up at, um, at Religion News Service this week. And, you know, one line that I think is relevant here is that I, I, I said there that I think the biggest thing in the way of white Christians, and you know, I am a white Christian, so this is very much a confessional statement on, on my part, um, is that we are so wedded uh, to our own innocence. Yeah. And, you know, that is the biggest thing in the way. I mean, there's, there are, you know, biblical words for that, um, like pride, uh, you know, that are, yeah. are pretty clear. Um, but, I, but I do think that is the challenge is that we have, you know, we as white Christians have told ourselves the story that everything that is good about America, you know, we have been instrumental in bringing into being. Um, we are the pillars of the community. Um, we, you know, and there's, there's certainly some truth to that, right? If you look at hospitals, you look at charity work, you look at, you know, there's certainly, there, there's evidence that those statements have some truth to them, but they are not the whole truth. Um, and I, we have mistaken them, you know, to be the whole truth. And I think that's the challenge in front of us is, you know, it's, it's a kind of um, naive, I think, and frankly, childish, magical thinking um, that I think we've got to get beyond. You know, we've, and, and I think of it in a way for, for myself as the challenge of moving toward maturity, the challenge of kind of growing up, and the challenge of being able to hold at the same time uh, this idea that, yes, um, we can point to institutions all around us in any given city in the country you know, you can point to institutions and work that has been done, uh, you know, for the least of these and for the poor and all of that. And all of that is true. And we so fundamentally got it wrong, um, you know, particularly around issues of race, around issues of sexuality. Um, and, and both of those things can be true at the same time. I think that's the challenge is that there's this kind of resisting move sometimes that, well, if we admit anything, the whole thing comes crumbling down. Um, and, you know, I, I think that feeling is real um, if you take it seriously. Um, but I, I think, you know, the kind of mature way to walk this path is uh, to say, yes, that's true. And, and to be open, I think, to an honest, you know, reckoning with, with the history. Um, in some ways, I think that, that, that may be the bridge really from the first book to the second book uh, for me was, uh, the first book was really describing a new reality that we're living in um, and that we're living in too. Uh, this changing America, this changing religious landscape. Um, you know, there's no, like, you know, the fact that there's no um, religious group now that's bigger than the religiously unaffiliated, uh, for example. Like they make up a quarter of the country today. And if you look at young people, they make up 40% of Americans under the age of 30, right? That's a new reality. That's a kind of new America. And, and then I think the second book, um, uh, you know, white too long is is really about taking in particular what I what I think to be you know one of the biggest places where are are the biggest place perhaps where we got it wrong we white Christians got it wrong and that is on the issue of uh, white supremacy and racial justice and trying to take a deep dive and to say all right well what does it look like if we really hold up the mirror we try not to flinch and we try to really sit with this discomfort um, that an honest reckoning with this history um, you know, uh, entails. Thank you. That, that was really important. And, and I want to rush to say, because I still want uh, all Americans to buy and read The End of White Christian America. 
It is. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm serious. I think it's a really important book uh, to understand America and to understand religion and also to understand Christianity. But as a, as a pitchman for this, for that book, and we're about to get to your new book immediately, I promise you. Um, your book does not slam white Christian America in terms of ignoring all the great things that have come out of a very, the part of the history of white Christian America that has been life-giving and hospitals and schools, let's just go there. That's really amazing. And it's not the whole story. And if we really want to understand that the truth shall set you free, um, as Flannery O'Connor said, first it will either piss you off or really make you uncomfortable, um, which we'll get to at the end of this conversation when we talk about James Baldwin. Um, but in order to tell the whole story, or as you're saying, um, to be grown up, you know, this is calling us to maturity. We, we've really got to tell the whole story. So as a segue to our talking about uh, White Too Long, your new book. When I was called out of retirement to be the interim rector of St. Luke's Episcopal Church downtown, I was thrilled that the church had already decided to have as their one book, one church book for Lent that year, James Cone's The Cross and the Lynching mm -hmm. Tree. Mm -hmm. And that, and I, I know James Cone is, a, is somebody who's one of your intellectual heroes, um, along with Tony Morrison and Eddie Gloud and James Baldwin, all of whom we'll touch on in just a few minutes. But um, he paints such an illuminative picture of there being two Christianities mm -hmm. going on, particularly during Jim Crow lynching period. And you wonder, as a white Christian, how did I miss this? You know, yeah. and I had friends who would call me and say, Ed, thank goodness we're reading this book because I didn't know about all this stuff. And, you know, particularly the great white liberal heroes who were so silent during mm -hmm. lynching. Anyway, yeah. if we're going to tell a full story, we're going to have to understand the Christianity of the black experience. So now let's talk about your current book. So expose a little bit for us from your own journey, why you had to write this book. Yeah, well, this book is, is personal. I, you know, most of the time, uh, really up to this book, um, I've very rarely written in a way that put myself into the story. I had my social scientist hat on. I was kind of trying to lay out the data. I was trying to tell, I was certainly trying to tell a story and a narrative and everyone has a personal stake and what story you're telling, but it was very little first person narrative. So this, this new book, you know, the first sentence of the book has the word I in it, and uh, the last sentence of the book has the word us um, in it. So I mean, I've tried very hard and very intentionally, Beautiful. you know, to, to kind of be there and, and, um, and, and to really tell the story. So I actually begin um, with my own story. And, you know, I say, the, you know, the first sentence of the book um, just says I grew up in a tradition uh, so I grew up Southern Baptist, uh, mostly in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, although for your Atlanta audience, I will say um, I was born in Atlanta at Emory University Hospital, and I'm, I uh, uh, received my PhD uh, at the Graduate Division of Religion at Emory, literally across the street from the hospital where I was born. Uh, the main religion wow. buildings are right across the street uh, wow. there. So I have uh, deep ties to, um, uh, to Atlanta. Uh, as well, but uh, grew up mostly in um, uh, Texas and Mississippi, for the most part in Mississippi. Um, but, and, you know, so I grew up Southern Baptist. My family, uh, you know, goes way back, uh, been Baptist as long as I can trace it back. And, and actually in middle Georgia, our, our family goes back six generations to Twiggs County and Bibb County, Georgia, right around Macon, um, you know, all the way back uh, to the mid 1700s, as far as I can trace it back when they arrived from Virginia. Um, so part of it was really trying to get a handle on my own story. So like one way of even telling that story was, how did my family get to Georgia? 
Well, the answer to that is uh, my sixth great grandfather served in the Revolutionary War. And one of the things that qualified you for was to receive a tract of land in the newly opened territories in Georgia. Now that's a sanitized way of saying after the Creek and Cherokee Indians had been forcibly removed from the land, they carved it up into two, 200 acre plots and were handing it out you know, to people who had served the country and the, um, or the colonies in the Revolutionary War. So that's how my family got to Macon, Georgia. And my, my father grew up literally next to the Indian burial mounds in, uh, uh, on the Okmulgee River in, in Macon um, you know, they were long since abandoned. Um, and, uh, but, but that's the story of how we got there. Um, and, you know, when I go back and, and I did some research, uh, just trying to think about, I, I have my family's 1815 Bible um, uh, that uh, sits on the top shelf in my library downstairs. Um, and in it, you know, it records births and deaths and all of that. And as I began to do a little more research, um, I unearthed, you know, some wills and estate settlements. Uh, and I had heard that we had, you know, that our family wasn't, we weren't the wealthy planter class. I mean, we were, we were Baptists, which in Georgia meant you were on the lower end of the socioeconomic uh, strata, not the uh, upper end um, uh, of, the, of the strata. But, but that was also remarkable too. Like I thought, well, we were fairly poor, so that must have saved us from being slave owners. But uh, one of the more remarkable documents I turned up was um, my sixth great uncle, uh, who was that early generation who came to Georgia uh, when they settled his estate, his entire earthly goods were worth less than $50,000 in today's money. So, you know, he's lower middle class, um, or maybe even like working class, uh, you know, barely above subsistence farming. Um, and yet he owned a number of slaves. Um, and when we add up the slave, the, the slaves and the, that were listed there, they made up 73% of his assets, right? So, uh, even, someone like even uh, kind of at that level, that kind of barely above subsistence farming level, you know, owning five slaves was the way to make that work, right? That that was, um, you know, making a living on the backs of, of uh, enslaved labor was, was the way that this worked. And, you know, that goes by without any really comment in my family's history. Um, and I think just kind of unpacking all of that. And, and I, one thing I'll recommend, you know, is just as a practice that I did in, in writing the book is, this thing you said about, I didn't know that, right? Um, you know, I, I feel like I must have said that to myself a hundred times as I was doing the research for this book, right? Even with someone with a PhD in religion, I've got a seminary degree. And even then, um, the digging that I did for the book, um, you know, and, and, and where that digging started, this is the practice um, I, I might recommend. I just spent a couple of weeks and, and I spent like an hour a day just journaling and trying to ask myself, as I think about my childhood and think about my early adulthood, where, where did race appear for me? Um, you know, where did it show up? Like, and if I let myself kind of sit with it a little bit, what memories come back? Um, and I basically just did that for a couple of weeks. And I was, I was really surprised at what was there um, that I had just packed away, um, you know, back in the recesses of, of my mind and then started to kind of really interrogate those things. And then it becomes fairly visible fairly quickly, right? The ways that, that um, a kind of commitment to white supremacy, like just one thing, like one thing is I say, well, what's one question I asked myself was what sermons did I hear growing up? And, and by the way, I was that kid who was at church like five times a week um, growing up. I mean, I was in the youth group. I was there all the time. So if it had been preached or taught, I would have heard it. Um, and when I asked myself, how many times did I hear a sermon about racial inequality or anything having to do with civil rights? The answer, honestly, was none, zero. And, I, and, and just that silence, that deafening silence. And, I, and that, that's me growing up in Mississippi um, in the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, so that's the 1970s were when Mississippi finally got around to integrating its public schools, schools that I went to. And yet, not a word you know, from the church about what's going on out there, what we think about this, um, all of that. So um, all that's to say, I think, is that certainly many white Christians like me have neatly packed away a kind of um, uh, silence um, about these issues. Uh, and, and the, but if you pay attention to the silence, um, it's fairly loud. Um, you know, when, when you really take, take enough time to sit with it, and particularly when you uh, compare it to what was going on just outside the church. And, and I guess the last thing I'll say is that the one thing that is rung in my ears uh, is a line from uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham Jail, where he's, he 
he's looking out on these churches and saying, who are these people sitting in these, you know, uh, churches, they're respected, they're moderates, they're not, you know, they're not perhaps the KKK members, but who are they who sit behind uh, the, their anesthetizing stained glass windows? And, and I think that piece of it, um, you know, rang really, really true to me that that, that was one of the functions that church uh, uh, played for me was a sort of uh, anesthetizing of my conscience and a soothing of a conscience that should have been um, deeply troubled. Yeah. So I want to raise a process point right now. It is so important for us to understand that whether or not it is a conscious intentional experience, we are being told a story about ourselves all the time. And I was hearing you say, describe something about the story that you were being told about yourself about race through the silence of the topic of race, unless you had some sermons that crept in about the cane story, you know. Um, mm. We'll get to that in a minute. And right now, what I think is going on to a new level, and I hope it stays, after the murder of George Floyd, is a lot of people are asking the question, what was the story that was told me about life and about myself? and about American history, and about the relationship between white and black people. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, uh, as a friend of mine says, uh, she's African-American, she says, Ed, we black people were the oil of America. We made America work um, because of our free enslaved labor. And now there's a process of what I'm calling re-narration. one of the most meaningful emails I have ever received was from a parishioner the other day, uh, maybe three weeks ago, who said, I am so damn angry that I'm having at, at all the stuff I'm having to unlearn. Mm-hmm. Because the truth is piercing through and it is incompatible with the stories that she has been told. And then, then she has repeated to herself about herself. Yeah. So Robert P. Jones, you, uh, author of Quite Too Long, you are helping us re-narrate both Christianity and American history. And my, is it very, very helpful. So we have to go to the phrase white supremacy right now. Mm-hmm. And go back to that place in your book where you say, you know, that's a trigger phrase for so many people. Right. But if you flip it, so you unpack that now. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I struggled a lot with um, the, the, you know, what terms to use to talk about this problem. Um, you know, and, and I just, at the end of the day, realized that um, I was going to have to use the word white supremacy. So the full title of the book, right, is White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity. And I was going to have to go straight at it if I really was going to tell the truth um, here. And the challenge is, I think, again, this kind of innocence reflex kicks in and people say, well, wait a minute, right? And, and me too, right? So wait a minute, you know, I'm not going to KKK meetings. I'm not marching uh, you know, chant with the white supremacists in Charlottesville with their tiki torches and shouting Jews will not replace us and blood and soil. And I'm not doing those things. And I, I condemn those things. Um, and so doesn't that mean my heart's and mind is in the right place? Um, and, and I think, you know, the answer to that is, is no, right? That, that uh, and in fact, the stronger that reaction is, I think the more attention we should pay to it, right? Uh, because it, it is a resistance uh, to something that that's important, and so what's it resisting? Um, what's there that there's that quick reaction? Um, part of it is nobody likes to be criticized, you know. But but I think it's deeper uh, than that. Uh, what's it defending? Really, is the is the question we have to ask 
um, have to ask ourselves um, and then to sit with that for a while. And, and um, but, but one of the ways I try to just kind of um, make this term real and not the term white supremacy real and not just be about, you know, people in pointy white hats um, but, uh, and sheets, but, uh, but to be about something more insidious um, and, and, uh, and troubling than that is you just kind of flip it around, right? And you, um, so that's what you were talking about. You, instead of saying white supremacy, what does that mean? Well, we just flip it around. It means the supremacy of whites. And if you kind of unpack that a little further, it's a value proposition. And Eddie Gloud actually is really great about this. I actually quote him on, on this section. He has a new book out, by the way, I want to plug, um, called Begin Again, um, uh, that is uh, really about the legacy of James Baldwin and its uh, currency for our, um, our, our time uh, today. Um, but, uh, the, you know, what he says there, look, is, yeah, it's not just about pointy hats, but it's about a value proposition of a society that was set up to value the lives of white people more than it valued the lives of black people. And that that was a perfectly legitimate and in fact, divinely legitimated way of setting up American society, right? That, and that, that sense, sense of things um is i think my dog is barking uh, not a problem we all we all are having our <laughs> not a problem that's that's yeah. a humanizing experience yeah so Keep all right going. well we'll hope hopefully uh someone will rescue me from the dog barking um out there in just a second um uh so hold on one second i'm gonna have okay to just sure do this yep you know but i think one helpful way of, of getting beyond a kind of knee-jerk reaction or a, um, about a phrase like white supremacy is I just unpack it a little bit in the book by saying, what happens if we flip it around? And we just talk about the supremacy of whites. And you sit with that a little bit and it you realize it really is about a value proposition. Um, and, and here I kind of take, uh, I, I really have learned a lot from the work of Eddie Gloud uh, here. Um, they actually wrote it in his first book, Democracy in Black. Um, uh, that he, he talks about this, and it really is about a value proposition of a society that's set up to value the lives of white people more than it values the lives of black people. And so if you think about that, um, you know, that is one way of understanding the struggle of uh, Americans, you know, uh, sociological, political, cultural setup uh, through uh, our entire history. Right, and whether we're talking about slavery, whether we're talking about the uh, Jim Crow laws, um, whether we're talking about um, you know uh, integration, whether we're talking about mass incarceration of African Americans uh, and the, their un unfair treatment in the criminal justice system, policing violence, all of these things really um, are a legacy of this basic way that society has been set up. And now that even that is a passive sentence. You know what we really should be saying is the way that white people set up American society and legitimized and baptized it with Christian theology as the way that God actually wanted society to be built. Um, and so we take that seriously. I think that's really where um, white supremacy isn't an attitude, right, that people hold. Um, it's not like, that's why I don't really use the word racism that much in the book. I really talk more about white supremacy because it really is more of a structural, institutionalized thing that has been uh, cemented in our laws and our politics um, and in our culture and that we inherit, uh, right? That, that as we come into the world, we don't come into a world uh, devoid of values, right? We are born into a world. And if you think back about Augustine and their theological ways of thinking about this, it's one way of thinking about this is as a concept of original sin, right? We're born into a world that's broken. Um, and that brokenness imprints us from the very beginning. Um, you know, and the things that we just absorb uh, from what our parents tell us, from what our institutions tell us, what our religious rituals and practice tell us. Um, and in some ways, we have to wake up, right, to how those things have formed us and interrogate them. I mean, that is the task of every generation is to sort of say, what and what we have received is worth keeping? What of it was an error? And, you know, how do we then move the tradition to a place of greater faithfulness and authenticity um, in our lifetime, right? Um, uh, knowing that what we've inherited um, has been marred, disfigured, um, at least to some extent, um, uh, by decisions that were made in the past. And in that way, we do have 
um, present responsibility, right, for those past decisions because they have shaped who we are and how we live in the world. Indeed, and I just want to add that that is one of the jobs of a church, of a healthy church, of a church that is compelling and relevant. We don't, uh, we don't abandon any of the other responsibilities in terms of form, Christian formation, spiritual practices, gathering for worship, being a mission-driven church in the world for the quote-unquote least of these, and we have to be a part of this, getting the story right about the role we've played as all Christians, uh, not just white, but primarily white, in setting up a system. And I love Robin D'Angelo saying that racism is not a moment, it's a system. Setting up a system whereby huge numbers of people are devalued because of the skin they're walking in. And it's heartbreaking. I mean, it's just heartbreaking. And it's constant. Um, now, unfortunately, our time is running out. So we've, uh, there are two kind of things that I want to, you to, to talk about. I, I want you to talk about hope, which you really deal with at the end of your book. And I really uh, want you to talk a little bit about James Baldwin because mm. that, that op-ed piece he wrote for the New York Times, which you have in your conclusion chapter yeah. is really, really pow powerful. And, and before going there, I do wanna just underscore your endorsement also of Eddie Loud's Begin Again, because I'm about a third of the way through. And, and I, love, I appreciate the fact that he calls um, well, I just remember one other thing, but he, but he calls the supremacy of whites the lie mm -hmm. and how we participated in perpetuating the lie uh, on and on and on. And, and, and uh, the thing I remembered is I'll never forget the chilling experience I had of being taken in Cape Town, South Africa into mm -hmm. the room where the theologians of the time got together to parse out why Christianity as they understood it totally supported apartheid with no sense of irony, no sense of lie. And you can find, I mean, there's a Methodist church here in Birmingham where a same kind of thing. There are gathering spaces throughout America where white Christians have gotten together to, to spell out and express the theological rationale for white skin superiority. Yeah. Which is what well, you're talking about. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in I, with the, the Baldwin quote. I think it's worth reading. So, yeah, no, it, it serves as an epigraph to the book, and it's actually where the title of the book. Um, from which the, the title comes. So this is um, from a, a New York Times op-ed that James Baldwin wrote um, uh, shortly after the assassinations of Martin Luther King and, and Bobby Kennedy. Um, and you know, I should say for those who maybe haven't read a lot of Baldwin, um, his work, um, he, is, he is definitely someone, I think I write in the book, who refused to dip his pen uh, in the well of hatred, right? He is yep. animated by love beginning to end um, in remarkable ways given his um, life experiences and, and his experiences particularly in, in the U.S. Um, but he, he writes this, I think, in the wake out of deep grief at that moment, um, you know, in, um, uh, in 1968, uh, when we've got leaders are just getting cut down, um, you know, and so he, this, but this is what he writes, and this rung enough in my ears, I think, as I was writing to kind of hold on to it and, and to really, you um, uh, have this quote as, as a central part of, of what I was trying to say and, and titling the book. So uh, this is from the op-ed. I will flatly say that the bulk of this country's white population impresses me and has so impressed me for a very long time as being beyond any conceivable hope of moral rehabilitation. They have been white, if I may so put it, too long. The effect on their personalities their lives, their grasp of reality, 
has been as devastating as the lava which so memorably so which so memorably immobilized the citizens of Pompeii. They are unable to conceive that their version of reality, which they want me to accept, is an insult to my history and a parody of theirs and an intolerable violation of myself. So that's pretty powerful uh, stuff and, and it has sort of stayed with me. And so, I, you know, one way of I, I think really thinking about this book is my trying to give an honest response to Jimmy Bublin, um, you know, 50 years later. Um, and, and to try to make good um, uh, on, uh, you know, having white Christians. And he was, I think, particularly disappointed, as King was, with, with white Christians in particular, um, you know, who couldn't find it in their ideals um, to really stand up um, uh, at, at their own risk, at least the vast majority um, uh, of them. So, um, you know, there's the, uh, I think that's the quote, and I think some of the kind of convicting, you know, core uh, of, of what animated the book and, and what really compelled me, I think someone like me, given my history, um, to write the book. And I think the other uh, just thing to say before we make sure I get this in, that the other big linchpin for me in the book was that these, it wasn't just history, it wasn't just sort of my own story, but when I looked at the current public opinion data, um, it was there too, right? That, that white Christian groups, question after question after question on structural justice, are 30 percentage points away from their African-American brothers and sisters on questions about the Confederate flag and monuments, on questions about the killing of African-American men by police, or whether this is a pattern um, or just isolated incidents, um, uh, whether or not uh, the history of segregation has limited black mobility. Like, there's just these enormous gaps in the public opinion data. And I should say, not just among white evangelicals, Right, but among white mainline Protestants and white Catholics. And I think that seeing that pattern over and over again um, made me realize that, yeah, you know, this stuff is not just back there, but the legacy and the way this has been handed forward through our traditions is evident. It, you can measure it um, in the public opinion data today. That is such a strength of your writing that you've got all of that data at your, at your fingertips and you integrate it in such a beautiful way. And I want to rush to say that this book, Quite Too Long, also is a powerful book of theology. I mean, you go into the theology and the biblical interpretations that have been very distorted and the impact has been violent ways of perpetuating this false myth and uh, uh i'm very emotional about that reality in your writing robert p jones you i think you've written a book of great courage oh thank you i really do um there's so much more to talk about but I would love for you to kind of wrap up by talking about where your hope is. You've gone through what, I mean, I mean, when I was reading what I've read of the, your book, and thank you for sending it to me so I could digest a little bit, I kept thinking, wow, I wonder if he wrote this chapter before or after he went to see his psychotherapist. <laughs> <laughs> because because yeah. it, it's such an it's such an act of courage for you to say that about your um ecclesiastical mother's milk you know what i'm saying it's yeah. um, you really unpack it so th number one thank you for the courage and 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 i really appreciate your gift at writing and also your gift of recognizing marvelous writing i mean that piece that you just read from James Baldwin. Oh, no. amazing. Yeah. But let, let's go to hope. Okay. So after you've done yeah. that, so where and where are you not hopeful? Understanding that hope is different from yeah. optimism. Yeah. No, it's a great question. And you know what, what I'm happy to say um, that I have a different answer today 
um, than I would have had when I turned in the manuscript last fall. Wow. Um, you know, I, I think when I turned in the la manuscript last fall, I was much more pessimistic that um, one, you know, I didn't even, you know, that a book that talked about white supremacy would even find much of a, uh, a hearing. Um, you know, I just, that it would just be rejected right out. Um, I think, unfortunately, uh, I think that, you know, there's a great tragedy uh, in the, the murder of George, George Floyd um, and, and so many others before him and even uh, uh, some sense. Um, and, but in that tragedy, I think we have an opportunity. And I think that's what we've seen in the country. So if there's one place I'm, I'm hopeful, um, I went, I went yes, yesterday for the first time down to my office in DC, which is not far uh, from 16th Street in the White House, where the big yellow letters, Black Lives Matter had been painted um, through across four lanes of traffic uh, from K Street down um, to the um, uh, to the White House has now been designated Black Lives Matter Plaza. Now, and that is literally the driveway to the White House. So, you know, if you walk down that street, you 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 end facing the White House after walking down the street with these big yellow letters. Um, and in and down there um, this week, there is a mural uh, that's been painted of John Lewis um, standing there, and um, it was actually the the last public appearance he made was. Uh, as part of the Black Lives Matter protest down there on, on 16th Street. And there's people down there taking their pictures with this mural, like standing, you know, by John Lewis next to the Black Lives Matter uh, letters that are, that have been painted down right in front of the, you know, right down the front of the White House. Um, that I think is, sim it's all symbols, it's all symbolic, but I do think it means that something has dramatically shifting um, in the country. Um, you know, the fact that, so I said, I'm from Mississippi, uh, one of my good friends from seminary is the uh, Ken Hester is the president of the Mississippi Baptist Convention right now, um, and he stood up uh, with the backing of the of the convention uh, and called on the governor and the state legislature to remove the Confederate battle flag from the state of Mississippi's flag, which is the last one to include it um, there. Six months ago, I would not have imagined uh, that that would that would have been happening. The uh, the head of the Southern Baptist Convention, the president, J.D. Greer, um, is, uh, was very quick to come out and say, look, let's just be clear, we should be saying Black Lives Matter. We shouldn't be countering with All Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter or any of that. We should sit with what that means. We should take it in. It's an appropriate thing to say. And he's pledged to retire a gavel uh, that has been used to gavel in the Southern Baptist Convention for 150 years that was given to the convention by a slave owning founder of, of the convention. He's finally gonna retire it after 150 years. So um, those things are all big and, and moving. So I, I think that we're at a moment, um, and I guess the thing I would kind of hold up with, I think where I, where I may be, uh, I don't know the answer, but, but I, we have an opportunity, that makes me hopeful. But what I, what I do know is that white Christians, the temptation for white Christians in this moment is going to be to uh, reach for a, a fairly old formula and one that gets us off the hook fairly quickly. And that is white confession plus black forgiveness equals reconciliation, right? Uh, now what's missing from that formula is justice and repair. Uh, and for me, I think the real question before us right now is will we white Christians take this moment uh, and certainly there's, there, will, there will be a lot of confession and lament um, that's the easy part. Uh, as hard as that is, that's the easy part. Um, the question is, are we going to couple our confession and lament uh, with what true repentance really means? And that is making, uh, repairing the damage, uh, making restitution of those we've wronged, um, and really, uh, you know, making sure that justice comes before we reach out for reconciliation. And in fact, we shouldn't probably be the ones reaching out for reconciliation at all. We should do enough work of repair and justice until our black brothers and sisters reach out for reconciliation, right? Knowing that we have then mended, at least done, done something substantive uh, to mend the damage. So one way I've written about this is that, you know, the, I, I do think that the goal of reconciliation is not a bad one, but it's, only, it's one that can only be arrived at indirectly for white Christians. Um, that it, it, you can't get to that summit without walking through the valley of justice and repair. That's an important point. I really appreciate your putting it that way. Thank you very much. I, I hope 
that this book is going to be a great bestseller and that people will take it and really metabolize it into their lives. I think it's a great book and I'm really, well, thank grateful, you. really grateful for your spending this time with us. Um, Robert P. Jones, the author, will you hold up those books please again? Oh, sure. All right. I, I, I'm sorry. They're, I'm, they're, I feel like I'm on, on the talk show. But, uh, they're, 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 <laughs> but they're, they're very, very, very important books, everybody. Yeah. And uh, I would, I would want uh, every church person uh, to read them. And I think they're very important for a very wide audience. Thank you for being with us today. Uh, thank you for going through uh, a conversation that has some discomfort in it. I really believe that that discomfort is in the service of a true understanding of the beloved community and what Jesus was trying to say when the translation is kingdom of God, but I, I, I like to think of it as the organization or the civilization of God. So thank you very, very much, Robbie. All the best. Well, thanks, Ed. So great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Same here. Yep. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you very much for staying with us for that amazing conversation. We will continue it next Sunday talking specifically about individualism and the individualistic lens by which much of Christianity uh, employs and how that sells us short. It's an amazing conversation. But now we're going to stop for the day and we are having a love hydration experience of your bringing by bottled water for our brothers and sisters who are experiencing homelessness now. Normally on this Sunday, we would do a sandwich build, but Crossroads has said, no, we need water this time. So there are a few of us who are out in the parking lot from one to three today for a contactless receipt of your gifts of bottled water. Come into the parking lot uh, off of Peachtree Street and let us greet you and receive your gifts of bottled water. Have a great week, my friends. Thank you.